Jeff Joseph was a 45-year-old businessman from Louisiana. He loved wearing fedoras and never said no to a friend who asked for help. On June 21, 2014, he was in Northern California for an appointment before heading to land he'd leased in the area. Jeff never arrived for the meeting and didn't show up at his property later. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. I know the following is a mundane statement. There's nothing wrong having goals. Goals are what get us out of the bed in the morning. Both the positive ones, we want to be a billionaire, we want our children to go to Harvard, but also the negative ones, we don't want to get fired, we don't want to get divorced. Probably the goals we hear about the most come from sports. Athletes talking about winning the Super Bowl, winning the Masters. They set goals for themselves and freely talk about them in interviews. Whereas personally, many regular people keep their job, family, and monetary goals to themselves. In fact, for those people who talk too much about succeeding, we deem them arrogant and self-involved. However, reaching goals can become an obsession, especially if we convince ourselves it's us against the world. We all know of too many people who have destroyed themselves trying to reach perfectly fine moral goals. They throw caution to the wind in the face of family opposition, bankruptcy, and personal harm. I bring this up because Jeff Joseph was a guy who found his calling in life. He found the goals that he wanted to attain. Yes, you're going to find out that his business was highly controversial. He encountered a lot of hurdles, even going to jail. But he believed what he was doing was right, and he wouldn't be stopped. However, it might have been that desire, him being a man on a mission, that may have caused him to take one too many risks in who he was dealing with. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's site, charlieproject.org. Jeff Joseph flew into California on June 16, 2014, arriving from his home in Louisiana. After visiting with family for a few days, he planned to travel to Willow Creek in Northern California for a business meeting. From there, Jeff would head to a farm he ran on land he leased in the Witchpeck area. On Friday, June 20th, Jeff left Southern California and headed north toward Humboldt County. He arrived in Northern California late that day and stayed over in a motel. On June 21st, records show that Jeff got up and used his cell phone and accessed his email. On the call, he told a friend he was killing time, meaning he was waiting for the person he was supposed to meet. Both of these actions were traced close to the area where his meeting was to take place in Willow Creek. After these communications, though, Jeff's phone was never used again and his email was never accessed. His phone last pinged a tower in the Bloody Camp area. The person Jeff planned to meet that morning says Jeff never arrived, and Jeff's workers in Humboldt County said he never showed up there either. Jeff's vehicle disappeared along with him. It was a green 1998 Toyota RAV4 with an LSU sticker in the rear window. The vehicle has a Louisiana license plate, and its number is XMZ 
0-6-2. The interview for this episode is with Jeff's sister, Vicki Joseph. And now the unfound housekeeping items. You can find the program on Twitter, at unfoundpodcast. You can email the program, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. Unfound has an Instagram account now. Our username there is unfoundpodcast, just like our username on Twitter. Unfound is also on Facebook. It's the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group. It's a private group. But please join us in the conversation. You'll find out some things that go on behind the scenes and how the show gets put together. Unfound can be downloaded at Podomatic and iTunes, and I deeply appreciate the people who have gone to iTunes recently and given Unfound some great reviews. And please mention Unfound at all the popular true crime locations, including Reddit, WebSleuths, Podcasts We Listen To, and all other true crime websites and forums. And now, Unfound News. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, I told you about a listener of Unfound who had taken it upon himself to start his own investigation into a disappearance in the state where he lives. In fact, this disappearance is the oldest disappearance in that state's existence. That interview is going to be taking place this weekend. That would be March 11th, March 12th of 2017. So you can look for that in an upcoming episode. I'm really looking forward to that. I also have an upcoming interview that concerns a disappearance that was turned into a book, and it happened right here in Florida back in the 1990s. In fact, I believe we're going to split that disappearance up into two episodes, one where we talk about the disappearance itself, and then the second episode where we talk about how the disappearance became a book and everything that the author and the families learned since then. I think that should be really interesting. And finally, I'm still working on putting together the first Pinellas County Unfound Meetup. If you're new to the show and you don't know what that is, my plan is to get together with Clearwater and St. Petersburg residents in the hopes of shaking loose some leads in some of these cases that have been unsolved, specifically disappearances, in the last 30, 40, 50 years. I really wish I had started it by now, but my asthma really got in the way of that, but I think I'm really ready to make that happen now. And one more note before I present to you my interview with Vicki Joseph. And I say this because you deserve to hear it from me first. Jeff Joseph was in the business of marijuana. His sister goes through how that came to be in our interview. What's important and relevant to what we do on Unfound is that no matter what you may think about the legality or illegality, dangers or benefits of marijuana use, the point is that no one deserves to disappear or to be murdered because of it if, in fact, that happened in this case. We only worry about finding people who have disappeared on this show and nothing else. I now present to you my interview with Vicki Joseph, sister of Jeff Joseph. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Jeff Joseph, Vicki Joseph. Vicki, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Thank you. Vicki, tell the listeners a little bit about your brother. I understand that you two were very close. Uh, yes, we were. Um, Jeff was a um, very outgoing um, helpful, helped everyone, kind of 
in a way, just um, fun-loving, just kind of carefree, carefree guy. And like I said, um, you know, throughout his different um, business ventures and life, you know, he made a lot of friends and along the way helped helped a ton of people. So um, just a big-hearted, just loving guy. And he was always like that from from as long as you could remember. He's all he was always like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Even as a child, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Just a very unique person, yeah. I'm sure that some of the listeners are going to look him up and see pictures of him. He had a unique kind of dress. He liked to wear hats. Where where do you very unique kind of look? Where do you think that came from? Um, Jeff just had a very. Um, individual kind of style um personality um yeah always wore fedoras um had every fedora known to man um and just had a very cool sense of style dressed very cool and it was part of his i think it was just came down a part of his artistic you know side he was very creative very into music very into creating things so um i think that's where his sense of style also came from. Interesting. Uh, what is something, the, the first thing you think of, maybe a childhood memory or from your teenage years, something that pops in mind when you think of Jeff these days? Um, I think about, which is probably the most painful part of all of this, is how he was always there for me. We had not a easy childhood. Um, my mom was in a pretty bad marriage. So um, it was a lot of her being isolated, fighting with her husband. And so Jeff and I bonded. We were always, he was always like my safety net. I was younger than him. And there were things going on at the time. um, Like, um, I don't know if you remember that serial killer, uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. I do. So, okay. So during that time period, um, it was all over the news that he was in our town, coming through our town. Um, and Jeff was always my safety net. I'd sleep on his floor, you know. Even back then, he was such a good businessman. He would, um, in order for me to sleep on his floor, he would bargain with me. I had to wash the dishes for him for a week, do his chores, in order to get by a week of sleeping on his floor, you know. Um, he was a little bit of a wheeler and a dealer then, huh? Yes, he definitely was, yeah. Huh. Even back then with his sister, but... Even if I didn't do his dishes, I was sleeping on his floor. You know, he was there for me. He was always there for me, always, up until the last time I spoke to him. And this is uh, kind of what motivates you today, almost three years after his disappearance, to find out what happened to him, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. How did he get into the marijuana business? Because this plays a major part in what we're going to talk about from now on. How did he get into that? Um, so it started in about 1987, and he was obviously, you know, just in his late teens, you know, he was just coming of like, you know, close to 18 around then, and um, our father had leukemia, and neither one of us had, you know, smoked marijuana or anything at that point in our lives, and... Um, my dad was in the hospital, 
now imagine if this happened today, but um, back then, one of the nurses uh, who my dad happened to know at UCLA gave him a little bit of uh, marijuana and said, you know, this will help you with your appetite. This will help you with your nausea. And so Jeff saw the effects of that and was amazed that this plant could do that for his dad, who was so deathly ill. And um, that stayed in his mind. That planted a seed in his mind. And that's where it began. And you think he decided right there that this is something that can help people and he's going to get into getting this product for others, even if the laws in the United States don't exactly go along with that? Well, okay, so it didn't start with marijuana. It started actually, so that planted a seed of, you know, marijuana as medicine, but it did. he didn't start out with marijuana. He started out, um, he had moved to Portland, Oregon, and he started out with hemp clothing, knowing that this plant had so many uses. So he moved to Portland, Oregon at about 19, And at that point, there weren't any of those. And he was importing fabric from China and making, hired some people to make clothing. And it did really, really well. He was very successful. And what year would this have been? He was 19, but what year would this have been? Um, this was right about 1920, so um, right about 19, early 90s. So okay. 91, 92, 93 in there. He lived in Portland. Did this surprise you when he got into that? Um, at first, I at first because you know back then I wasn't familiar with it. I didn't really know much about it. Other, than, you know, the access, uh, the internet wasn't real. Um, you know, wasn't something that we really had access to very much. Um, if we did at all, I don't really even remember. I don't think we did. Um, and he just, uh, so I didn't know much about it other than what he would tell me. So no, it didn't really, but it didn't surprise me. You know, Jeff, um, Jeff wasn't a, was never a very conventional guy. And to go work for somebody was not really his personality. Just like, just, yeah, right. That's what it sounds like to me. I think that you capture that idea perfectly. He sounds like a guy who is best working on his own and could be successful that way. Yes, yes. Very successful. Now, eventually, he came back to California, though, and he started some dispensaries down in Southern California. What can you tell the listeners uh, a little bit, a little bit about that? Because that's also going to lead, kind of, toward when we get to talking about his disappearance. Okay, so in between the time he moved back from Portland, and um, we were dealing with, you know, helping our mom who started having some health problems, so. He did do some odd jobs between, like, 2003, 2004, and the time he opened his first dispensary in, like, 2006. Um, and he, uh, you know, so he did what he had to do to save up some money. And, in fact, first, let me back up. He went down, so he moved down to Venice Beach, Marina del Rey, Venice Beach, and um, he opened up another hemp clothing store. So that's the first thing he did. Okay. And he did have that for a couple of years, and it did okay. It, did, it didn't do as well as the one in Portland, but it did okay. 
And from there, um, you know, he never told me much other than what he was going to do. Um, but from there, he found out about a very big space that was available to rent in kind of right on the border of Culver City and Marina del Rey. And he was going to open up a um, marijuana dispensary. And at that time, they were only issuing, the city of Los Angeles was only issuing permits for about 180 of those. Maybe the number might be off, but 160, 180 of those. And those ones were, by the state of California, allowed to function and run as long as they followed the laws of the state of California. Federally, it was still illegal, though. Of course. This was the problem. Yeah. This was the problem. Right. Right. So what problems did he run into? Um, so, you know, he started his business up, and um, again, he had a very large space, um, which... There was the storefront, which was called Organica, and then there was like a warehouse, and then there was apartments above it. Well, Jeff, with the nature that he had, um, people always found Jeff, people that needed help. Somehow, they were always drawn to him, and with his big heart, he helped everyone. So he started letting people live in the apartment um, above the warehouse, which is essentially attached to the dispensary, which is not allowed. And, um, you know, he didn't know what these people were doing, what kind of stuff they might have had on them as far as, like, drugs or whatever. He didn't, obviously, he didn't inspect them and have them empty out their pockets every night when they came home. But he kind of did, like, a, it was almost like a commune. Like, um, you know, yeah, I'll give you a room, but, you know, in trade for work. I need this kind of help. So I don't think that Jeff's judgment was the best on who he brought in and let around him in his circle. And I think he had some he had some great people and he had some not so great people around him. And how long did he do this? Because uh, the listeners should know he eventually had some law enforcement problems too. But how long did this go on before the law enforcement side of it started giving him a, a problem. Um, so he had a couple of years that he was building up his business, and it became the largest dispensary in Los Angeles, and it was right out on a busy street. And um, for probably two years, he had no problem. And then, and I might be off a little bit here, but um, I'll, I'll be close. Um, I'd say in 2008, he got raided, totally unexpected, had no idea. And, um, he was, he was shocked because, you know, he had all the proper paperwork. He was going to city council meetings. He was, he was following the law the best that he could, according to the state of California. So, um, 2008, he got raided. And they took a lot of money, a lot of marijuana, and uh, a lot of his, you know, uh, you know, the pipes and all that stuff. That, the paraphernalia. Yeah, paraphernalia. That's the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so they took all that. So it was a huge loss, financial loss to him. But they never filed any charges against him. 
So that was his livelihood. He reopened. He consulted with his attorney, and his attorney didn't really, didn't really, you know, didn't tell him not to. So uh, he reopened. Took him some time, but he reopened. And business as usual for, I don't know, another year maybe? But this whole time they were watching him. He didn't know that. And um, he got raided again. And again, and that was probably 2009, the second raid. And this time they came in, and I'm talking like breaking down the doors. I'm talking like machine guns, whatever they use, AK-47, whatever they are. Um, Everybody on the ground, everybody, you know, it was a big deal. And he, you know, Jeff wasn't there. And um, they raided it again and uh, took everything again and, again, did not press charges. What do you think was going on then? I mean, since then, it's been a few years. Have you ever been told why they raided his place? Was this L.A. County that was doing this? Was this Los Angeles? Was the FBI? Or who, who was this exactly? It was ev- Excuse me? everybody. It was everybody. It was everybody. Okay. It was the DEA. It was the FBI. It was uh, Culver City Police. It was really what ultimately what we ended up finding out is Culver City Police wanted that dispensary gone. They did not want a dispensary in Culver City. And the way that his building was set up is very strange, but he ended up finding this out from somebody that was, you know, involved with the city. They came in and they kind of drew a line through his warehouse and they said, this part of your building is Marina Del Rey or Los Angeles and this part of your building, which was the side of his building that the dispensary fell on is Culver City. So it literally ran right through his building, the dividing line. Oh, my. Very, very strange. And um, he did, at that point, consult with his attorney, and his attorney said, you know, don't reopen. Don't reopen. But Jeff was getting kind of a little bit obstinate at that point and was like, you know what? Screw it. They, they haven't filed any charges against me. And what, what kind of charges can they file? I'm, I'm, this is legal in the state of California. I have a license to do this. So he reopened. It, this time it took some time. This time, though, what I found out was his attorney advised him not to. I think his attorney got some information from the DA and advised him. And he had a very high-profile um, attorney that he consulted with very involved in the medical marijuana in the dispensaries and, you know, advised him not to reopen. But he did some co- building upgrades. He did some, you know, things that I think the city required. And it took him a few months, and he reopened. And he had thousands of, you know, um, patients. And, you know, I worked there with him. Um, I saw that we, you know, we were compliant with everybody. They had to have a doctor's recommendation, and we verified every single person before they were allowed to come in. They had to be over 18 and have a doctor's recommendation. And at the, at some point, it came out in the the court case that um, there were some undercover uh, officers that came in, and that we didn't 
uh, do our due diligence, didn't verify them, didn't do this. And I don't know one person that worked there that wouldn't have done that, you know, that would have just let somebody in. Could have been a trumped-up charge. Could have been. Yeah. Could have been a fake charge. Okay. Sure. Sure. They were definitely, at that point, looking looking for their poster boy. And this is my opinion. Um, And Jeff was very outspoken, very, um, at this point, he was frustrated. They had raided his home, and he was going to do what he was going to do. He was not going to be stopped. He was, at this point, kind of an activist for the for the medical marijuana community. Mm-hmm. He was featured in magazines for that industry, you know. There um, actually is a movie based on big parts of his story where he's featured in it. And Alex Jones, I'm sure some of your listeners know who Alex Jones is, um, is narrating the movie. So it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. And he was interviewed on local L.A. television as well. I think I've seen at least one interview with him. Yes, yes. Okay. So the police finally came after him, though, and uh, again, right? Yes, yes. And what happened um, this after time? He, after he reopened for the third time. Oh, let me just backtrack. So at the, during the second uh, raid, mm. um, he had Jeff had a dog. Um, you know, sometimes these animals get um (laughs) just because of their breed they get labeled as being vicious so he had a dog named scabs uh it was a pit bull and the second they saw a pit bull they shot the police shot his dog they murdered his dog uh the dog actually miraculously survived oh wow okay he was he was never the same though he was never the same it's like PTSD in a human. Um, so Jeff's friend at the time, Elliot, um, took Jeff's dog because Jeff had ended up, you know, just moving out of his house, couldn't have a dog. And so his friend offered to take the dog. So his friend took the dog, nursed him back to health, you know, paid all the vet bills. And, um, okay, so that was raid number two. And that was the big deal is, you know, they shot his dog. They shot his dog. I mean, there's pictures of it on the internet of, you know, this bloody, gory, you know, dog being shot. But, mm-hmm. um, so then he reopened a third time and he was open probably two or three months and it happened again. It was in February, 2010. So this time I was there. And I had, it was probably five minutes after we opened. And, um, you know, it was basically like something you'd see in a movie. It was just bam, 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 bam on the door and no time to even open it. And they just kicked the door in. And there was probably 30 agents from different agencies. So, um, again, cameras ripped down, which I don't know why they needed to rip his cameras down. They weren't doing anything. There's no reason to rip, take his cam- rip his camera equipment out. Um, but did they take Jeff this time? Did they take Jeff this time? He never got taken to jail. It was just the stuff. Is this the time they took him to jail? No, Jeff wasn't there again. No. Okay. No, but Jeff was close by. Um, they did end up getting him later, I think later in the day. Yeah. 
um, I think Jeff had walked to a local market or something, and on his way back, you know, he saw all the vehicles and everything, and he walked up, and um, yeah, they they definitely took him that time. Okay, he he knew automatically coming back what was going on, and and they took him to jail. This he he got out on bail though, didn't he? He got out. Yes, yes, my brothers um, bailed him out. Yeah. How did this all lead eventually to him getting out of L.A. County and moving his operation, I guess you could say, to Northern California? How did that all happen? Well, I mean, that took some time. Um, in between all that, um, our mother had um, her final stroke, mm-hmm. um, and she was bedridden. And so Jeff and I um, moved into a house together with um, along with Jeff's girlfriend, and um, we decided we'd care for her. So Jeff took kind of a break while he was dealing with the court stuff. And our mom, he kind of was just, you know, flying under the radar. And then our, about after, and that lasted about a year. And then our mom passed away. And that's kind of what led, Je- led, led Jeff to... Um, moving out of the state first, moving to Louisiana, because that's where his girlfriend is from. So he wanted to kind of, after everything he had been through, he wanted to kind of start over and just get away from Los Angeles. So he moved to uh, Louisiana, and he was fine. He was uh, not involved with any of that anymore, and um, it didn't take much. It took, um, he was actually running a flag business. And he was, it was becoming very successful. In fact, if you look at Mardi Gras pictures this year, you'll see his flag design, his Mardi Gras flag design that he redesigned. It's everywhere. He just didn't wait it out for that to really take off. And um, again, Jeff being creative and an entrepreneur, you know, that's what he went and did. But it, he didn't have the patience to see it through and, you know, wait for it to become successful. So, um, Somebody approached him about marijuana while he was working at his flag business um, at the French market. And um, it pulled Jeff right back in. And he decided, you know, you can't really do that kind of stuff in Louisiana because the laws are much stricter than, you know, California. A little different than Southern California for sure. Yeah, the South is a little bit different, right? So um, he had heard, of course, a lot about Humboldt. I think he had been up in Humboldt County, which is where, you know, most of the weed is grown. And um, he decided he would look for... Now, keep in mind, he didn't, like, brief me and tell me what was going on. He kept very quiet. So none of us really knew exactly what he was doing, but he did tell us that he was going to lease some property and grow his own marijuana. So um, he found some property up there, and the first property that he leased, for whatever reason, did not work out. And that was the summer of 2013. The growing season is like starts very early in spring and goes all the way through harvest in like November. 
So mid-2013, things didn't work out with the first property, and he found another property. And he moved everything over there. And how do you go about, how did he go about finding this property? Give me an idea. Um, Craigslist. Craigslist. Okay. And the area is so much different than like what I am used to. I'm used to very much like soccer mom suburbia kind of town. Um, up there, it's a completely different world though. It's like, um, you don't really have to have like credit checks and you don't have formal leases. Everything's like kind of handwritten. It's like you're back going back a hundred years to the wild west. It's kind of what it is. So he found somebody that was willing to lease him some land, very cheap price, a lot of land. Um, we did the, did the owner of the land know that he was going to be getting into the, the marijuana business? Is that an understanding, do you think? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 They didn't care. They don't, they don't care. Everybody grows up there. Okay, then what happened? When, 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 how did everything progress from there? Uh, okay, so um, in 2013, the end of 2013, his harvest wasn't as good as he expected, and that's because... Um, they had to, you know, uproot plants and all that stuff mid-season. So 2014, he was going to make, you know, a much better season. Um, he was going to start early. He was going to invest more money. He was going to really um, take care, you know, make sure that the ground that he was going to grow in was, you know, taken care of really well and invest what he needed to invest into this. So um, he had somebody that had worked with him um, taking care of the property in 2013, so he wanted that guy again. That was somebody he knew from Louisiana. And who was that person? Um, his name was Hayden, Hayden Black, and he was a friend of Jeff's. Um, you know, Jeff knew him maybe a couple of years. And um, he wanted him back because, apparently, you know, he did a good job in 2013. And um, so he wanted him back for the next season. So um, Hayden said he would go, but he, um, the conditions were that he bring, bring his friend, Ben, who Jeff did not know. And in that kind of business, you don't really want somebody that you don't know on your property with access to hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of plants. Um, but it, Jeff was pressed for time, and Hayden said, you know, unless I can bring Ben, I'm not, I'm not working on your property, unless I can bring Ben, because I have somewhere else I can go work. So Jeff was like, okay, I don't know this guy, but okay, all right. Okay. And there was, a, there was somebody else there, though, too, um, Elliot Storms. What can you tell the listeners just in general about him? We'll get into specifics a little later, but what can you tell about him? How did he enter the picture? Um, so, in, you know, now in the almost three years since this has happened, um, and we've gone through all of Jeff's stuff and read all his conversations, and um, in, like, December of 2013, Jeff ran, was having a conversation on Facebook with Elliot, ran it by him, what he was doing, what he was up to, what he was planning on or thinking about. And Elliot literally begged him to go up there and um, grow 
grow for him. And Elliot had been involved in hydroponics and had a hydroponics store in Los Angeles. Jeff knew him from Organica. He worked for Jeff at Organica. So Jeff trusted him. You know, he trusted that he knew what he was doing. He was very good uh, at what at what he was doing, at growing plants. And um, they had a relationship. They knew each other for like seven years. So um, Jeff said, you know, and the guy literally threw himself on Jeff. Jeff was like, well, hold on a minute. You mentioned um, checking out an opportunity in Colorado where it's legal. Maybe you should go do that. But like I was saying, Jeff was very naive. He was kind of a pushover. Uh, he helped everyone, and Elliot just kind of, according to that conversation that I read between them, kind of pushed himself up there. And so it ended up being uh, Elliot, as far as I know, Elliot Storms, Hayden Black, and Ben Rogers up on Jeff's property. Okay, so Jeff now had this leased land up in Northern California. He's going to do better in this next grow season. He has Elliot, Hayden, and Ben working for him out there, up there. How did that go? And there were some problems, weren't there? Um, yes, there were. Um, so Jeff, keep in mind, Jeff did not live on that property, okay? He paid them to take care of the plants and live on the property. Jeff came in once a month, okay? So Jeff did not live there, um, just so that's clear. So in, I want to say, April or May of 2014, um, Jeff needed to get some money to them, and they needed the money for equipment, soil, whatever it was, and they needed it immediately. There's, again, it's very remote. There's not really access to Western Union or anything like that. So Jeff had a P.O. box up there at the only post office up there, and Elliot, from what we've learned, is the one that would go check the mail and do that kind of stuff when Jeff wasn't there. So uh, Jeff overnighted and wrapped it really well, wrapped it really well, um, cash, a lot of cash. He was very nervous about doing this because we all know you don't send cash in the mail. But he had to get the money and get it to him immediately. And he overnighted money to the P.O. box. Do you feel comfortable saying how much money it was? Um, somewhere in the area of fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars. All right. So. And, and what happened? Um, well, what they told Jeff was that it never arrived. Now I don't know all the particulars on why it wasn't tracked. If it was tracked, oh, I think that Jeff was too scared to track it because he was afraid that. There was a chance that maybe the post office did intercept it, but his gut told him that it arrived because everything else he had ever sent arrived. Because he used that post office when he would fly in from Louisiana, he would, if he needed to get himself money, keep in mind, Jeff, at this point from the dispensaries and them take, raiding his bank accounts and all that stuff, Jeff did not function with a bank account. Everything was in cash. So if he needed to give himself money, he would get a bunch of money orders, send them to himself. At He had a post office box in L.A., and then he had one up there in Humboldt. So this is something that he did to get money to where he was going. And he would go to his P.O. box and, you know, 
he'd have access to his money. So um, that's what he did in this case. And um, they said that it never arrived. Now, he'd never had a problem with his stuff not arriving, ever, ever. So his gut told him, he told me this, he told me about it, he was sick. He was just absolutely sick. I mean, imagine losing that kind of money. You feel sick inside. And then also having the lingering feeling that it was somebody that worked for you that took it. I I suppose, yes. Yeah, yeah. So he was sick about it. And there has been some talk amongst family that talks to Jeff's friends that he perhaps confronted them about this missing money. Whether that took place or not, I don't know. And when you say confront, do you mean at the time or at the time before he disappeared, at the time he did disappear? No, it would have been um, if Jeff sent the money in May. We don't know exactly when he sent it and if there was a proper investigation, which is another story. um, We probably could have tracked that down when exactly he sent it. Um, But we seem to feel it was in May. So if he had already had his, you know, he had already been there and left and then sent the money after he got back, it would have been when he went there in June, which is when he disappeared. And perhaps they had a confrontation about the money. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So now that the money is missing, that's the first problem that he's ever had working with these guys. What led up to Jeff's disappearance? What, were, what happened a couple days before he was in Louisiana, he went to L.A.? Explain to the listeners everything that went, hap- that went down there. Okay, so Jeff flew into Los Angeles. Um, he stayed with my uncle, who had cancer, and Jeff, Jeff cared, cared deeply about my uncle. Um, taught him how to make oil, you know, and all that stuff. So Jeff visited with him for... A couple of days. He had a court appearance for this ongoing, um, he was actually on probation, and he was um, hoping to get off probation. So he went to court, and uh, that was probably right around June 18th that he went to court in Los Angeles. And then um, from there on, he probably stayed one more day in Los Angeles. And the morning of June 20th, he left my uncle's house and said that he was driving up to his property and he'd be back in like a week. And your uncle's place is in Southern California and he's driving to Northern California. How long of a drive would that be? How many hours? It's about 12, 13 hours. Mm. It's way way up in Northern California for about 12, 13 hours. So my uncle technically that we know of is the last person that Jeff saw. Other than his friend Brian that lived in Los Angeles, we also did hear that Jeff stopped at Brian's and um, also picked up some tires for one of his work trucks that was up on the property. So Jeff was driving a very small car, a little old Toyota RAV4. So if that thing was filled with four huge tires or even three tires, I mean, that car was full. You know, his little RAV4 was full uh, because it was big truck tires. 
we did hear that that was actually Jeff's final stop was to pick up those tires for the truck. And does he make it to Northern California? Well, um, so here's kind of how it played out. Um, my uncle, who um, was expecting Jeff back, was started texting me, and he's like, hey, where's your brother? And by this time, it was like June 24th, and it wasn't abnormal for me not to hear from Jeff. Um I hadn't, you know, and like I said, there was no phone reception up there. And I said, I don't know, you know, Jeff, he's lollygagging around up there or whatever. And I didn't think much of it. So about another week passes. And I just, I don't know why I just really didn't think about it. I just thought Jeff was, you know, up there doing his thing. And, you know, it's not like we talked every day at this point. We didn't. Um, Another week passed, and my uncle texted me and said, Jeff was due back on Friday. Well, it's not like Jeff not to be, it wasn't like Jeff to, you know, he wasn't very disciplined. It wasn't like, okay, I'm due back Friday, i got to be back Friday. All we knew that Jeff had to do was be on a flight. He had a flight from Los Angeles to New Orleans on July 1st. We knew that. Um, so another, you know, it was now about June 29th, and my uncle is texting me again, where's your brother, where's your brother, where's your brother? And I'm like, huh. Now it starts, like, resonating with me. Something might be wrong. So I texted Jeff. And I know Jeff. He's very antsy. He's not going to be in an area that doesn't have service, internet service, cell phone service. He's not going to be up on the property and not come down for days at a time. He's just not going to do it. He's too antsy. He has to be in communication with people. He has to be using his phone all the time. He has two phones going all the time, all the time, all the time. So um, he could not sit still, couldn't sit still to watch a movie. So anyway, um, I texted him. So I knew when 24 hours had passed that, and he didn't text me back, there might be a problem. So my next instinct is Jeff's phone, his iPhone, was on my phone plan. So my next thought is to open up, go, log into my phone account, and go to Jeff's phone and look at his activity see like you know was he using his phone i just had a bad feeling i just had a very bad feeling at this point so it's like the last day of june okay so it's like june 29th june i don't know how many days june happened but it's like the last day of june and i looked at my at jeff's phone and i saw that the last time he ever used that phone was june 21st Right then at that moment, and I was at work, right then at that moment, I knew this horrific feeling came over me, like um, dread, just dread. I knew that Jeff was gone. I knew at that moment Jeff was gone. You weren't sure what There's happened, no. but you knew something happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what did you and your family do? What, what, what went on from there? Um, first of all, we scrambled, um, trying to figure out, uh, you know, I first started making phone calls to Jeff's girlfriend, to my brothers, um, my cousins, my whole family, just like notifying everybody there is a problem. Jeff has not used his phone in like 10 days. Um, I think the next thing we did was call the police. 
Uh, we scrambled around with that a little bit as to who to call because he left from this county. He lived in this county, lived in this state. He's up in this, was headed to, you know, this county. So we really didn't know where to call. Um, so my brother um, called LAPD. They bounced him to Ventura County Sheriff, and he ended up filing a missing persons report. And in the meantime, we got a hold of Elliot Storms. My brother got a hold of Elliot. And Elliot said that Jeff never made it. They were expecting him, but he never made it. And they never bothered to call anybody. There were no records of them ever trying to call Jeff or anything like that. No. Um, no, there is um, one Facebook message from Elliot to Jeff that says, hey, man, your family's, um, no, hey, man, where are you at? That's what it was. Hey, man, where are you at? You're, uh, people are worried about you. Where are you at? And what date, now, do you remember what date that was? Early July, just early July, like maybe July 2nd. July 1st, when we were all just freaking out. Um, so now that's an interesting piece because I think that he's more involved than, than he's led anybody to believe, obviously. But why that message then, if he was involved? A lot of people think it could be, you know, leaving a trail of covering your CYA, right? Yeah, sure. But what was uh, but you ended up finding out that Jeff did have a plan when he went up there that he was supposed to be meeting somebody before he actually went uh, to his actual the, the actual land where he was growing his marijuana. What can you tell the listeners about that? Okay, so in the course of you know trying to get a hold of you know the first people you think of are the people that are on the property are at the place where Jeff is due to arrive. So trying to call Elliot, trying to get a hold of Hayden, have no clue who Ben is. We don't even know who this person is. So I fortunately had met Hayden the summer before, so I knew him somewhat. So um, we got a hold of Hayden, and Hayden said that Jeff was dealing with someone um, in the area named Chris. And... You know, it's been a while, and I've gone through a lot, so I don't really recall, but he um, said that Jeff met this person through Craigslist. And I believe that Jeff was buying little baby plants from him. And that he did tell us that Jeff had a meeting with this person before he was due to arrive. So in the course of looking for Jeff, um, we did some research on this person and found out that he had warrants out for his arrest for armed robbery with intent to do great bodily injury. Now, Jeff wouldn't have done any research on the person. Jeff's just thinking, it's weed, it's innocent. Everybody's like me, kind of hippie-ish and love and peace and all that stuff. Well, there's a lot of other drugs up there, too. And we're talking about a lot of money. And Jeff's girlfriend always warned him about the dangers. I didn't really know the extent of everything that Jeff was doing. Um, Jeff never messed with anything other than marijuana, ever, ever, ever in his life, personally, for sale, nothing, ever, 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 very anti any kind of man-made 
anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we found out that Jeff was definitely um, due to meet with this person. Um, I tracked down a couple of this person's friends. And who this, so um, let's just get this out there. The person was named Chris, but he goes by Robert Hunter, right? I don't know what he uses. His name is Robert Christopher Hunter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think sometimes he uses Robert, sometimes he uses Chris. I think he kind of alternates it. So we find out about his record. We find out that, yes, Jeff uh, did have a meeting scheduled with him um, the morning of June 21st. So when we looked at Jeff's phone records, we did see that Jeff made two phone calls the morning of June 21st. We did. We know who both of those people were. One is a friend in New Orleans and definitely confirmed talking to Jeff. The other is his friend William in Massachusetts, and that was like a 15-minute phone call. And he definitely confirmed talking to Jeff and said that Jeff said that he was waiting to meet somebody. He was killing time waiting to meet somebody. It was a very early morning phone call, and that's all that Jeff elaborated on with him. And was this Robert Hunter ever tracked down? So, like I mentioned, he had warrants out for his arrest. Um, law enforcement there is very, according to everything I hear, very shorthanded. Um, so they never um, actively pursued finding him on those warrants. So it was kind of a, uh, if we catch him for something else, then great. You know, we'll get him for his warrants, too. So in two years, no. Um, no. Law enforcement didn't actively go looking for him to question him or to do anything at that point. Um, he ended up getting arrested for something else in like November, December. So he did, according to the detective, finally get questioned about Jeff's disappearance and their tentative meeting and all of that. So when you say November, December of what year? Uh, 2016. He finally got arrested for something else. So two and a half years, this guy that that Jeff was supposed to meet was never questioned about Jeff's disappearance simply because the police couldn't allegedly track him down. Right. They didn't have the resources and all mm-hmm. of that to track him down. And what did, what did Robert Hunter have to say? You know, um, the detective hasn't really gone into much detail with me. I've asked him about that. Like, you know, what was he asked? But all I've gotten from the detective is that Jeff didn't ever show up to the meeting. Mm. Um, uh, Somewhere within the early part of us looking for Jeff, um, the CHP up there um, did ping his phone, and I did get records of that. So I do know that the morning of June 21st, Jeff was was within five miles of where this gentleman lives. And there's no other reason why Jeff would have been there unless he was planning on meeting with him there's no reason why jeff's phone pinged there for hours it was not out of the it was it was not on the way to his property this would have taken him in a different direction than he would have been going to his place where he grew his marijuana well well, no he would have had to pass through kind of that area but he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been there for an extended period of time you know, his of phone course. wouldn't have continued pinging there for hours and hours. He would have just passed on through. His phone would have hit the tower and then moved on to the next tower. Mm-hmm. So it paints it, 
his phone pings paint a, a pretty clear picture for us. I, I would have so. to agree with you, Vicki. I have to agree with you. Now let's let's talk about something else uh, regarding all of this. Um, the owners of the land and the neighbor. They, Jeff didn't exactly get along with these people, did he? They, he had some problems with them. What can you tell the listeners about that? Um, so it came out, um, you know, after Jeff obviously disappeared, that the next-door neighbor, and I do recall Jeff saying that, he didn't like the next door neighbor. Um, and keep in mind, this is not like uh, suburbia. So it's not like, you know, houses, this is a mountain. And she lived a little bit below Jeff, the property Jeff was leasing. So um, she um, definitely made it clear that she wasn't a big fan of Jeff's work ethic, meaning um Jeff coming into town and leaving town, not staying there and doing the job, but having hired help. She made it very clear she uh, didn't like him, but she loved the guys that worked for him. So she was friendly with Elliot and Hayden and Ben, but she wasn't friendly with Jeff. Correct. Okay. Correct. And what about the owners of the actual land that he was leasing? So we tracked down who that was, and um, so the neighbor that we were just talking about, her name's Holly, she um, is kind of the what they call the caretaker of the property that Jeff was leasing. She's friends with them, with the owners of the property Jeff leased, and she is the caretaker, whatever that means. Um, again, they operate completely different than my life, so a lot of this stuff is like I can't even comprehend what you're talking about. Um so um, I got a hold of the owners of the land, um, and Elaine and Tim Bauer, and asked them, you know, if I could go up to the property, and they absolutely refused to help me. I asked them, you know, can I see a copy of the lease? Um, I have power of attorney over Jeff and all his dealings, um, so I'd like to go get his prop. I'd like to get his belongings. They absolutely wouldn't let us up there. They would not help me, assist me. I said, you know, I'll drive all the way up there, just meet me and escort me onto the property because there's a gate. I can't get up the driveway. There's a gate, a locked gate. Did you not your brother and your father tried to go up there and they weren't, weren't allowed on the property as well? Did that not happen as well? My brother and my uncle. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Brother and First uncle. Really, that's, that's okay. Um, when my brother and uncle went up there, which was right after we realized Jeff was missing. Um, they got a hold of Elliot, and Elliot was out of town. I think Elliot was in San Francisco, and they talked to the neighbor. And, you know, at this point, they were my brother and my uncle were very highly emotional, running on adrenaline, and they said, you know, we're going to hop this fence. We're going to come up there. And they, she, she told them, you come on to this mountain you come onto this property you will be shot so at that point i've got my brother's wife freaking out you know she doesn't want her her husband shot i don't want my brother shot or my uncle shot i don't know what these people are capable of they don't have they don't live by the law they it's very unincorporated it's very lawless so um they um threaten to shoot them so 
the general consensus in the family was turn around and don't go up there. Yeah. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Say go up there anyway? I mean, no. no. And the police aren't any help in any of this either, are they? At that point, no. at that point, they weren't. No, because Jeff is an adult, uh, almost middle-aged man, and he could be anywhere. He could have just decided to go to Hawaii. He could have decided to go anywhere. He's, you know, a voluntary, voluntarily missing, in their opinion, mm. is what they tell me. There was something else about Jeff's disappearance that you, I don't know when you exactly you discovered this, but Jeff wasn't the only, well, he was the only person who disappeared. But what about the equipment on that farm where he was growing the plants? Tell the listeners about what you discovered regarding that. Um, well, after all was said and done, and I asked Holly, the caretaker of the land, to... You know, I, I needed to arrange something to get Jeff's property because Jeff had a work truck up there. He had generators. He had ATVs. He had a lot of stuff. Including the marijuana. <laughs> including the marijuana growing. Correct. Um, all his stuff was gone along with the marijuana. So the um, only thing that was left up there was a couple of sentimental keepsakes that Jeff had up there of, like, my mom, which... That kind of shows you how soft and sentimental he was. He had things of his, you know, recently passed away mother up there to make him feel like he was somewhere like home, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I ever got back. How long after he disappeared did you find out that all of that equipment, like you said, the trucks, the generator, the rest of it was gone? How long after he disappeared? Um, okay, so my brother, my older brother David, had been in touch with Elliot. My brother David was the only person that Elliot would communicate with. My hundreds of text text messages, not one ever got answered by him. But he would communicate with my brother David. And he promised David that when the season ended in November, he would give David Jeff's share. Well, according, I mean, how do you know what that is with a plant? I mean, that was all, all Jeff's investment. Yeah, it was all Jeff's, Jeff's share. Yeah, he owned it. Yeah. Yeah, he was paying you to work there, but that was Jeff. It was all Jeff. So he said that he would meet up with my brother David and give him Jeff's share. Well, um, ironically, the season ends, they harvest, and Elliot never responds to my brother David ever, ever, ever again. Ever again. So um, I asked Holly about all Jeff's things. And Jeff's plants, and she said, I couldn't tell you about the plants. I have no idea. Um, And she's like, there's no truck up here. There's no ATV, as if she knew nothing. As if she knew nothing. And you've to this day, as we talk here in uh, March of 2017, you still don't know what happened to any of the equipment. I have no idea. I have no idea. And unfortunately... That truck, that work truck, not the vehicle he disappeared in, but the work truck that was up there, we cannot locate that because, unfortunately, um, with the way Jeff did some things, um, he took it up there. And the plan was to get it registered later, but he bought it from somebody down in Southern California, drove it up there, 
and had not registered it yet. So it wasn't even in his name yet. So I have no clue about that vehicle. There's no way to track that. And what is what was the vehicle? Do you have we know specifically what Jeff was driving. Do you know specifically what kind of truck this was? Maybe that'll help the listeners out a little bit. All I know is it's like an older, like maybe in the eighties, uh, white Dodge pickup truck. Large white Dodge pickup truck. That's all I know about it. Okay. Hopefully that'll help. What is what has Elliot and Hayden uh, and Ben, we don't want to forget about him. What have they all said uh, about that time? Any time, any, I know you said that Elliot doesn't respond to anything now, but what have you heard? What have they said since Jeff disappeared? And what what is the way that their lives have gone since the disappearance? Well, they haven't said anything. Um, they don't contact anybody in my family to even ask about, you know, the case, like the investigation, like, you know, a normal person, like I think I am, thinks, you know, if my friend went missing, I would definitely be in touch with the family. I'd be curious. I definitely, I was living there. I would want to know, like, wow, is there, was there a killer in the neighborhood or, you know, what, whatever happened? Like, what's going on? Like, update. Not once. Not one single time. And all the times I've reached out, um, the only person that will communicate with me is Hayden. Not anymore, but he used to. And um, I asked him multiple times to get me in touch with Ben. He acts like um, he doesn't really know where he is. When I have people that have told me that they, you know, were roommates, that they lived together, um, you know, that, of course, they grew up together as children. I mean, they're they're tight, like brothers. Um, so Hayden has kept Ben very, very hidden. We don't know a thing about him. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know a thing about him. Um, now, Hayden, you know, um, Hayden was willing to talk, but, you know, since then, I think phone numbers have changed. They don't uh, follow Jeff's face missing page. They don't. Um, they all know how to get in touch with me. They all know how to get in touch with my family. Nobody's reached out. Nobody's posted a missing flyer. Nobody's done anything. So, uh, You've... Right after Jeff disappeared, though, you discovered something strange about Hayden. That when you t when somebody did talk to him, he wasn't even in California, was he? No, no. Um, he left the area um, like the day that Jeff was due to arrive there. Um, no, just so Jeff was due to arrive on a Saturday, and Hayden flew out Monday morning. So two days after, sure. two days after Jeff was supposed to get there, J Hayden was left two days later. Yeah, which was mid-season, which is very, very strange. And did he ever go back to California? Do you know that? No. No. He never went back. No. Elliot stayed. As far as we know, Elliot stayed on the property and harvested the crop. That's what we know. And we had heard that Ben stayed, too. But you don't know that for a fact. Once again, you don't even know what he looks like. Uh, no, and he has a very common name, so you, it's very it's hard. Tough. To, somebody with no social media presence or anything, you know, can't find him. It's tough. Here's a question I'm sure that the listeners are probably wondering, and, and so I need to ask it. In fact, I asked you um, when we first talked. Did Elliot and Hayden and Ben know Robert Hunter? 
I believe so. I believe Elliot for sure did, and Hayden knew who he was because Hayden's the one that told us that Jeff had a meeting with him. Um, through an investigation with a private investigator, we did find out that um, when Jeff met with Robert Hunter for the first time in May, Elliot was with him. However, the one time Elliot was talked to by this private investigator, he said he didn't know anybody that Jeff was dealing with. He didn't get involved in that side of the business. So um, private investigator find, found out something different and found out that um, Elliot was the one loading up all the plants in the truck at Robert Hunter's house. So um, definite uh, untruth there. With a, with, with a, in a previous transaction before the one that Jeff allegedly never showed up for. Correct, in May. Okay, in, in May. In May, so, yeah. All right, so just so the listeners are clear, Jeff had met with Robert the month before in May of 2014 for a transaction. Then he was going back to him again, allegedly, in June, the day that he disappeared. So that's why we're making the connection that Robert and uh, Elliot at least knew each other. Because I think that's Correct. I think that's decently important. Now tell us what you've learned about Elliot since this all happened. Um, it, it seems a little strange. Yeah, I mean, so this is a kid that well, I say kid because he's early twenties um, that didn't have any money. You know, Jeff paid him when he worked in L.A. for him. You know, maybe ten dollars an hour. He worked at you know, little markets, Trader Joe's. He didn't make much money, um, lived at home with his parents, other than when Jeff let him live on his property in Los Angeles. Um, but somehow, um, since then, he's been able to buy a home. Um, I, I find that um, very interesting because we all know how hard that is to do, especially um, paying cash. So... Um, I find that to be very um, mm -hmm. interesting. Very interesting. Um, so at well, so one point, he's working for Jeff on this farm. Who knows how much money he's making. Suddenly, Jeff disappears. All that equipment's gone. The marijuana is gone. And not long after that, Elliot is, is buying a house. That's correct. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And Hayden, um, by the looks of it and what people have told me, is traveling all over Europe. Now, they claim to hate each other, Hayden and Elliot. But it sounds to me like somebody split profits or did something. It does sound like that to me. In fact, I'm sure that uh, the listeners are going to draw quite a few inferences you know, from what we're, what we're talking about here. Um, where does the investigation into your brother's uh, case, is the investigation of your brother's disappearance, stand right now? Um, so, uh, you know, the first couple of years, it just kind of, um, if you research the area, there's a lot of murders. Um, there's a lot of fresh cases with actual real, I mean, it sounds gruesome, but real dead bodies, like, you know, actual bodies. And um, the investigator that has been put on Jeff's case, um, I'm in constant communication with him. And, you know, he will definitely tell me I have too many uh, actual bodies, like 
homicide that I have to deal with. Because with Jeff, they think, you know, he's just missing, you know. They, they have changed it in the DOJ site to um, under suspicious circ- missing under suspicious circumstances. So they know that, well, they think that something has happened to Jeff, uh, foul play, but um, with no body, there, there's not much they can do. So, you know, for the first couple of years, they didn't really do what I felt they should be doing, and I felt like we really lost what could have been crucial evidence by them not getting up to the property when we first reported it missing. Uh, there could have been evidence. There could have been blood. Who knows what could have been up there? His car? I don't know. The, the land has never, just so we're clear, the land has never been searched. The actual leased land that Jeff was leasing with the marijuana growing, it's never been searched. Um, okay, so five months after Jeff went missing, the detective says that he, uh, he, he went up there and talked to the neighbor. Hmm. As far, he walked around, he looked around, but there is a lot of land on that mountain. A lot of land. Now, if you're going to really search it, I, in that kind of a dense, foresty area, I believe you need dogs. Uh, dogs. Uh, you, the human eye is not going to be able to do it, especially five months later. So a thorough search, no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, you would think if something did happen to Jeff, if somebody did do something to Jeff, that might be a logical place that he might have ended up. And maybe you could infer maybe that's the reason the neighbor is the way she is and the landowners are the way they are. Well, right, right. And there's a lot of different other small details, like um, there is a very big hole, like by Holly's Barn, that um, used to be open. Big, big hole, like a car could fit into it. A huge hole. I mean, keep in mind, they use bulldozers and stuff up there and stuff like that, you know. Um, and there is a big hole next to her property, and um, it was open. And I know it sounds very odd, but it's... Keep in mind, again, like the Wild West, she shoots bears, throws them into this hole. These are things that I've heard from people that had been up on the property. Um, and it's now cemented over. It's covered up, which I find very odd. Um, also, um, private property, you know, like I never in my life thought I would know something like this. But, like, um, it's much better to, if you're going to, I guess, take somebody's life to bury them on private property because it's much harder for the police to get onto private property. You have to have a warrant and you have to have reason to get a warrant to search a property. You have to have very um, sufficient evidence to get a warrant to get onto somebody's property. So, you know, all these remains that show up in different parts of the country that are just thrown out into the open public property, you know, that's kind of a stupid thing. Private property, it's a much it's much harder to find somebody. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I do. And you have sent so, me you and you have sent me a picture of that area and you are right. It's vast. It's very vast. It's it's, it's vast. how many how many acres do you remember how many acres of, of land Jeff had there that he was using that he leased? Gosh. Oh, I want to say it was like 80 acres. A lot of area. But, it's a lot of area. Yeah, but yeah, that's just his property. There's a lot more. I mean, it's and it's just forest, redwoods, redwoods, redwoods. It's just so much, 
so many trees. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of things that I hear is people have been known to, uh, there's a lot of murders up there, a lot of missing people. And I've heard multiple times that they just use bulldozers and just bury the person in a car. That's it. Yes, Vicki, uh, just just to let the listeners know, if you start looking into disappearances in Northern California, the Humboldt County area, you are going to find many. And Jeff is just one of many. Now, the ones that I know about, the rest of them that I know about are women, but there are still many. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of men. I, you know, I've connected oh, okay. with a lot of the families of men. But, yes, there's women, yes, because there's a lot of drugs and growers, and they hire them to work on the properties and, you know, be trimmers when it's harvest time, and then these women just disappear. I'm going to ask you a question, but I want the listeners to know uh, something first, and this is something that I discovered that you and I have already talked about. Uh, any of the, most of the people that we've mentioned, uh, that I should say Vicki has mentioned in this interview, are on Facebook. And I just took some time to go to those people's Facebook pages and go back to the time around when Jeff disappeared. And who I'm talking about is the neighbor um, and the owners of the property. And not one of them, not one of them, ever mentioned anything about Jeff disappearing in any of their Facebook posts. And all of them, I would say, I wouldn't say they're crazy Facebook users, but they post often. Not a word about his disappearance, even though I'm sure that they knew as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as your brother and your uncle were showing up there, they would have known that Jeff was gone. Still, nothing. Um, Vicki, what do you believe happened to your brother? Um, well, I have two different theories. I either believe that when he met with Chris Hunter, even though he says that, you know, they didn't meet, um, I believe something happened at that meeting. And, um, I wouldn't put it past him from everything I've heard and all the warrants for violence. Um, I believe something either happened at that meeting and that Jeff never made it to his property. Um, or I believe that meeting went fine and he's been lying about not meeting with Jeff just because he doesn't want to be involved with this. And Jeff made it to his property and there was kind of a mutiny on him that this was very well planned out. And because to get rid of somebody on a car for all this time, nothing has surfaced. Zero. Zero. Um, I believe they killed him, or they know who did. Um, so I believe he, he was either killed on his property or during that meeting with Hunter. Not saying Hunter did it, um, but maybe he had somebody there with him because Jeff had a lot of money on him. I don't know if we touched on that, but Jeff had a lot of money on him. He had gone from Louisiana to L.A. and then to Northern California with a lot of money on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there definitely was motive. There was a property wor- uh, with plants worth a lot of money, and there was cash that Jeff had on him. Mm-hmm. A lot. A lot. So um, I believe it was one of those two scenarios. I don't believe it was some random person at the gas station. No. Mm-hmm. And we should mention something that you had mentioned before that uh, – 
Jeff was a little bit leery of Robert Christopher Hunter. He had dealt with him a little bit before, but you had mentioned, I think, that Jeff was a little leery of him. Certainly was more leery of him than he was of the guys who were working for him up on the, on the farm. That's correct, yes. Um, apparently, after Jeff met with him the first time, um, and like I said, Jeff doesn't do research on anybody, so he wouldn't have known that this was a dangerous criminal. Um, um, he told one of his friends in Louisiana he really didn't want to meet with this guy, and he was a little bit nervous, and he didn't really feel good about this. He didn't really feel good about this person. Kind of that feeling you get when, like, something's not right and the hair stands up on the back of your neck, kind of feeling like, uh. Yeah. And he should have listened to that. What do they call that? That, that gut Intuition. 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 Yeah. Right. He should have listened to it. And he just plowed through it um, and went, I, I don't know. I believe that he met with him, but does that mean things went sour? No. I mean, also, the, the other way to look at it is why do you kill your cash cow? Why are you going to kill your cash cow, the guy that's going to keep coming back? Why, why would you do that? That's a, that's a good source of income. That's money for you. It's not like this guy works, Robert Hunter works. He's a criminal. He doesn't work. He robs people. That's how he gets what he gets. He doesn't work. Yeah, it, I guess what you're saying is Jeff does not sound like a greedy guy. If they would have come to him and said, you know what, maybe we can make out a little better, work out a little better of a cut here, it sounds to me like Jeff would have been the type of guy that would have gone along with that. He would have negotiated with them. Yeah, he definitely would have negotiated with them, especially if, you know, uh, I, I don't like to think about what transpired yeah. um, because all kinds of bad things go through my mind, but even if they would have given him a chance to just go um, and leave everything for them. Um, if he was, if his life was in danger, he would have just split and never looked back and given it all up. He's lost way more than that in his lifetime. He, he lost Organica. He lost both of his hemp clothing businesses. He lost homes. No, he would have just walked away. And, and he was, let him go. and he was the kind of guy that seemed to eventually figure out how to land on his feet and start something else. Absolutely, yes. And he would have landed back on his feet, and he would have been fine. And I, I just don't. None of it makes sense. Why did you have to kill him? Because one of somebody did. Somebody did. Jeff is not just miss, a missing person. Vicky, what has this done to you and your family since then? Um, well, you know, I haven't been probably, uh, um, well, it's, I'll be honest, it's caused, you know, some problems. I'm very distracted. I'm distracted at work. I'm distracted in my family life, you know, interacting with my son, with my husband, with everybody. And it's caused me to have, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of, um, panic, a lot of trauma, um. It's changed me. It's aged me. It's aged me. Um, and it, it's something I think about constantly, all the time. And I just I just want answers. I just want to know what happened to my brother. I want to bring him home. I would like to, him to be laid to rest properly. He doesn't deserve, he never deserved to, wherever he is, um, he doesn't deserve to have that kind of an end. You know, um, he deserves to be 
laid to rest properly, not in some ditch or hole somewhere. I mean, but I can't, I don't feel I can do that until, um, I don't feel I can do that until I have closure. And I don't have any remains. I don't have, a, I don't have anything. So I'm kind of putting off doing anything until. Until you get the I answers like that you deserve. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I'm, I've done a disservice and I've dishonored him by not even having a memorial for him. But I, I, I can't, I can't do it yet. So. He has not been, has he been declared legally dead yet or, or not? No, it takes um, five years in the state of California to declare a missing person legally dead. Okay. So, How can the listeners find you, um, the story about your brother, his case, anything else? Where can they find you online, and how can the listeners help you out? Um, you know, obviously, if anybody listening in California, Oregon, any of those states, Louisiana, anywhere, know anything, um, please make contact. Um, I have a Facebook page for Jeff. It's Help Find Jeff Joseph. Um, you know, I certainly will check messages there. And, you know, there's current flyers there with phone numbers to call, with tip lines, with the detective's um, anonymous tip line. Um, Do you want to give out the email address? So the email address? is we will never give up Jeff at gmail.com. Okay. And you also, once again, you have the Facebook page, Help Find Jeff Joseph. Any, anywhere else, Vicki? Um, I mean, I could give out some phone numbers, like the Humboldt County Sheriff. Um, sure, give that out. I will put that as an attachment uh, for this episode, but yes, please give it out right now. Okay. It's the uh, Humboldt County Sheriff. And it's area code 707-268-3646. Uh, and his investigator is um, Todd Fulton. Great. Anything else, Vicki? It's important for people to know that Jeff, not only is Jeff missing, but his car is missing. And that's been um, a huge part of this is where's the car so if anybody ever sees the car um, there's pictures of it on the missing flyers um, I have license plate numbers um, I don't know if that car is still out and running if it was sold to somebody I have no idea I don't know if it was dismantled I don't know I just know that and what and what was it I mean what kind of car it was, was it a, a 1998 green Toyota RAV4 had Louisiana license plates on it and an LSU sticker in the back window. Man, you would think something like that would really stick out in Northern California. A Louisiana license yeah. plate with that kind of sticker in the window. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody happens to see a little green RAV4, I'm sure that, you know, maybe it's some stickers, I'm sure, maybe have been taken off, plates changed. I have no idea. But just in case not, you know, maybe it's parked somewhere. I have no idea. I don't know. Okay. I just know it's never been reported to a tow yard um, or a dismantler that I have found. Who has the title for that car right now? Where is the title for it? Um, I think Jeff had it. I think it was 
I think he had it with him on the property because we've never found it. It wasn't at his home. Mm. So I think he had it with him, which is crazy, but that's kind of Jeff to have the title with him. Just want to know what happened to my brother at this point. Just want to know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to try to help you out with this program. I'm sure the listeners are going to try to help you out as well. Uh, Vicki, I deeply appreciate you joining me on this episode of Unfound. Okay, well, thank you very much. And that was my interview with Vicki Joseph, sister of Jeff Joseph. You can count her among the many guests who I've interviewed who I now consider to be a friend. I've really enjoyed getting to know her over the last month. In fact, I don't think I've told you this yet, but... She was put in contact with me through Lila Savoy, sister of Christopher Hyde, a case we covered on Unfound back in December. Thank you, Lila. Something that Vicki and I did not cover, and that was an oversight on my part, that was my fault, we did not talk about the cell phone pings. We talked about the calls that Jeff made and how he was on his cell phone, but we did not talk about where those pings happened in the times, and I want to go over that with you right now. The day before, on June 20th, pings tracked Jeff from Southern California into Northern California, just like he said he drove. He went from Southern California to Northern California, from his uncle's to that motel in Northern California, and stayed over at that motel. That's exactly what the pings showed, just like Jeff said. And then the next morning, his phone pinged in the area of Willow Creek, which is very close to where Robert Hunter lived about five minutes away, although technically Robert Hunter lived in a different town than Willow Creek. However, Vicki believes, being that that area is so remote, that one cell phone tower covers the entire area, including where Robert Hunter lives. So it's very possible that even though the tower is Willow Creek, that Jeff could have been at Robert Hunter's place at that time. Now, I remind you, This would have been the time that Jeff told a friend of his while Jeff was on the phone that morning that he said he was killing time. That's what he told this friend of his. It was early uh, that June 21st morning. Then the last ping of Jeff's phone was in that area. It was right around noon. Over the next three hours, actually over three hours, Jeff's phone doesn't ping at all. It's either off, the battery was taken out of it, You can theorize as to what happened there. But when it did ping again, it pinged in an area known as Bloody Camp. Yes, that's what the area is really called. And there is a solitary cell phone tower there that covers quite a bit of area. Up in that part of California, there aren't a lot of people, so there aren't a lot of cell phone towers. But that's about 15 to 20 minutes away from the Willow Creek area. And there's no record of Jeff's phone pinging between the Willow Creek area and the Bloody Camp area in those hours. Now, to help you further understand the geographic locations uh, where all of this occurred, I'm going to go through a couple um, descriptions here. It might help if you eventually go to a map and see it for yourself. From Willow Creek to the Bloody Camp location is approximately 15 to 20 minutes. However, it's also about 15 to 20 minutes from this bloody camp, this cell phone tower in that area, to Jeff's farm. However, it's in two opposite directions. So even though Willow Creek and Jeff's farm are about the same distance away from that particular tower, 
Willow Creek and Jeff's Farm are actually about 40 to 45 minutes uh, away from each other. That's something to keep in mind. Vicky also said that it could have been possible for Jeff to be very close to his farm with his cell phone on and the phone be pinging off the Bloody Camp location, even though that tower would be about 15 minutes away. Once again, this is not like a city where there's a cell phone tower every mile and your phone is constantly going from one tower to the next tower to the next tower. It's not like that out in the wilderness of Northern California. And that was the other point that Vicky wanted me to make, is that that area where that last ping occurred in the area of Bloody Camp, very, very remote. The only signs that humans have even been in that area are the roads. The trees, the terrain, that area up there, it's just as it has been for centuries. And all they have, I'm guessing, are some logging roads and maybe some roads in case a forest fire breaks out that they can get the trucks in there and get the firemen out there. That's probably it. So if Jeff was disposed of in that area, if his car was disposed of in that area, it would be very difficult to find. So as the host of Unfound, what is my insight into the disappearance of Jeff Joseph? My fear is that this is a huge conspiracy of some type. I don't like how the neighbor, the landowners, seem to be so cozy with Elliot Storms, Hayden Black, and Ben Rogers. And then on top of that, Elliot Storms, Hayden Black, and Ben Rogers were friends or at least knew Robert Hunter. I remind you of a couple things. One that was mentioned in the interview and one that kind of we glossed over. One, all of those people that I mentioned who have Facebook accounts did not mention Jeff's disappearance at all. Not once. I went back and checked it. Maybe they posted something and deleted it, but all we can tell now is that none of them said anything about it at all. That's suspicious to me. That includes the neighbor, the landowners, and a couple of these guys. Also, there's no record that if Jeff did miss that meeting that June 21st morning, Robert Hunter never tried calling him. That seems weird to me. In addition, Elliot Storms, Hayden Black, Ben Rogers. When Jeff didn't show up at the farm, none of them tried to call him, look for him, at all either. I don't think you have to be a professional detective to be able to tell that this makes them look kind of guilty. Maybe they didn't try contacting him because they knew where he was and that he was already gone. I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess there could be other explanations, but that one certainly makes the most sense to me as I sit here today, almost three years later. I also remind you that it wasn't just Jeff and his RAV4 that disappeared. That truck that Vicky mentioned disappeared and his equipment, a generator I think she mentioned and some other equipment, all gone, never to be seen again. What happened to it? Nobody knows. Well, maybe the reason somebody took all of that stuff and sold it, let's say, is because they knew that Jeff was never going to come back looking for it. Well, who took that stuff? Who took that generator? Who sold it? I'm guessing it got sold. Who sold it? Not to mention, who sold all of the marijuana that was on Jeff's land when he disappeared? I'm sure they didn't just let it die. 
as Vicky said, I guess it was Elliot Storms or Hayden Black who told them that they'd give uh, them Jeff's cut. Well, it was all Jeff's. And in the end, the Joseph family got nothing. All of this is why I believe there are many people who know what happened to Jeff Joseph. I just don't know if they don't have the courage to come forward or they were paid off to keep their mouth shut or they're afraid or whatever the case may be. I happen to believe that the landowners know exactly what happened to Jeff's truck that he kept on that land. I, know, I bet they know exactly what happened to that generator. And you find who got rid of that equipment, you'll probably find who caused Jeff to disappear. That's why I keep thinking that this was a conspiracy of many. Even though maybe a few of them didn't necessarily have anything to do with his disappearance, they know tangentially other things that happened that you could then piece together to put together who caused Jeff to disappear. Unfortunately... I don't know if the Humboldt County Police Department has gone that far. Have they questioned the landowners? Have they talked to the neighbor and really given them a hard time, not just allowing them to get away with, well, we just don't know. I think they do know. They'd have to know. And I think if those answers can be exposed, then I think Vicki and her family are going to get some results in this case. What else needs to happen is I think the marijuana community of California needs to be more involved in this. I don't get the impression that they care very much about it. Uh, Jeff Joseph was a prominent person in their community, had the largest dispensary in Los Angeles at one time. And him disappearing is like a stain on their movement, a movement that's trying to prove to everyone how safe and socially conscious they are. This disappearance furthers the stereotype of shady dealings and shady people. Jeff Joseph, as I started out this show saying, Jeff Joseph was a guy who believed in what he was doing. He saw marijuana as a benefit to society. It was more to him than just being all about the money. So I ask you, the marijuana community, of which I am not a part, what do you know about Elliot Storms? What do you know about Hayden Black? What have you heard about Ben Rogers? Have you had any dealings with Robert Hunter? If so... It's time to get involved and come forward. If you know something, say something. As for what else could be done, Vicki and I have talked about a couple of those things, but I'm going to keep those off the record. Those are private conversations between me and her, and we don't want to tip off anybody to anything. Let's just put it that way. And that ends the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and subscribe, and please give Unfound a great review. I deeply appreciate it. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Unfound.